from the University of Toronto's Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy. This is the I'm Pharmacy Podcast. I'm Mina Tadros. As we covered in the last episode, part of picking the best winner or ensuring the medication works is that we want to pick the right dose. But picking the right dose isn't just about the amount of drug, but also how we administer it. From as early as the time of the Egyptians, it has been obvious that just taking the raw form of something may not be the best way. Early days of mixing powders with dough evolved into pills and then onto capsules. As you may know, drugs come in a lot of different forms. Injections, tablets, capsules, slow-release capsules, suppositories, gels, lotions, creams, liquids, solutions, tonics, emulsions, intravenous, intramuscular injections, eye drops, powderized inhalers, ovules, sublingual tablets, patches. Okay, I can keep going, but I think you get the point. We have a lot of options. So how do we pick how to introduce the right molecule into the body in the right way? Well, there's a lot of things to consider. How is it absorbed into the body? Where and how is it broken down? What's the size of the molecule? What is it treating? And where do we want it to go? See, again, you get the same point. There's lots of different questions to determine the right formulation. The same drug can even come in different formulations depending on what we need to use it for. A great example of that is steroids. We can have creams, eye drops, pills, and we select different formulations based on what we're treating. More importantly, it can also improve how we use a drug to make it easier for a patient. The most intriguing is the development of the sustained release tablet or extended release formulations. These are a really wonderful depiction of all that goes into the development of formulations. And although they may seem simple and commonplace today, they were a game changer. Their development allowed us to take medications that would have to be taken two to eight times a day to maybe just once a day. In digging through where they began, I found that the earliest patents were developed in the 1930s, and they depicted using wax-like substances to slow down the breakdown of drugs. And funny enough, as I dug through this, this use of wax dates back all the way to ancient Chinese times. But it wasn't until the 1950s and the development of more complex polymers that the ability to develop the current advanced sustained release tablets that we have was possible. In 1952, SmithKline Beecham, part of what's now GlaxoSmithKline, the pharmaceutical giant, introduced the first ever sustained release formulation. And it was able to control the drug release and kinetics and achieve 12 hours of release. That means something that had to be taken eight times a day can now be taken twice a day. This technology was called Spansial Technology. And it was released and allowed to control the kinetics at a predetermined rate. I know this may seem like very silly advancements, but this really changed the way that we can use oral medications. It dramatically improved the life of patients who had to take a pill every single day. So today we explore the magic of formulations. Why is it important? How do we decide from that laundry list of different medications, formulations, which one to choose? And how do we develop new formulations that haven't yet been developed. To start my exploration of the world of formulations, I spoke with Dr. Cam Kineko, a postdoctoral fellow in Professor Christine Allen's lab. Dr. Kineko studies formulations and is currently working on exploring potential combination treatments for cancer. 
So I got to say, like this episode and like talking about formulations, I've been really excited for because I've always had some thoughts about it. And I think often people don't realize how essential it is, right? We think about the molecule being invented and that's sort of the exciting part. But if you can't get it inside the person to the right place, so maybe tell us a little bit about how you got into the formulations world. How did, how did you get to where you are today asking these questions? Sure. So yeah, you're right. Formulation plays a huge part in drug delivery. Um, just because you have a drug that does something within the body doesn't necessarily mean that you can get the drug to the right place at the right time. So with, with regards to formulation and getting into formulation, I started my PhD in I guess a vaccine um, delivery project. Mm. So this involved delivering um, what's called a molecule is called antigen, and antigen is basically a target for the immune system to respond to. So it's letting the immune system know what to what to attack, what to target once it encounters this thing in the body, and especially for the immune system, it's really important to get these antigens to the right cells because the immune system comprises of so many different types of cells um, with so many different types of roles. And by delivering these um, antigens within specific carriers or you know d- specific formulations, you can target these formulations to these specific cells, which will have specific action. Do you remember the scene in Forrest Gump? Do you ever watch the Forrest Gump? I love that movie. I love that movie. It's my favorite movie. <laughs> Same so, here. So Forrest Gump, you know when he meets Bubba and they talk about all the different types of shrimp? That's what formulations feels like. When I tell people like how many different ways we can package a drug, like I don't think people realize, like in my world, when we get data, we get the variable of what formulation type. And there are so many. It's not just like even capsules themselves. And in the monologue for this, for the intro, we talk about, can you imagine the game changer when it went from someone having to take eight pills a day of something to suddenly only having to take it twice? So when you study this stuff, like how did you choose which formulations you want to study? Like how do you... So there's a new drug and you're trying to figure out. So, so that the labs just said like this thing is able to, you know, reduce blood pressure. How does, how do you pick which formulation is the best fit? That's a good question. So like I guess. Walk us through a formulation sign. I don't know what the term would be for you. What's, what's your thinking process when you're picking out from the menu of options mm. you have to like what, what formulation you're going to pick? Um, maybe I can explain it better in terms of my background in vaccines. Yeah. So. In the vaccine world, we're ultimately trying to deliver these antigens to, um, let's say, dendritic cells, which Mm -hmm. are, I guess, the real initiators of the immune response. And in order to do that, we have to think about where they are in the body um, and how we can target them specifically. Uh, So from a perspective of a formulation scientist, you want to think about all the delivery um, vehicles out there that can um, meet these demands. Mm -hmm. So... Initially, you would, of course, look through at what's readily available, what's been used in the past, what people have looked at, what's been successful, what's not been so successful. And from there, we pick a certain direction based on, I guess, the likelihood of success. And depending on, you know, things that we might have to change in terms of um, the route of administration, the type of uh, cell that we're trying to deliver to, we can make small changes to those delivery um, vehicles based on the literature out there. Mm-hmm. So what is a, what's a typical experiment in the lab that you do? So we're talking about this, you, so you've created a new formulation of some sort. Like walk us through an experiment that you do. How are you testing these formulations? Sure, that's a really good question. Um, from the standpoint of a formulation project, 
first of all, you need to really characterize the formulation. Yeah. Um, just to make sure that it's working, um, just to make sure that it's doing what you want, just to make sure that, you know, when it comes, when it ultimately goes into animals, when it goes into humans, it's likely going to succeed when it's going to likely do what you want it to do. So first of all, we want to characterize these formulations once we've made them. And the next step is to optimize the formulation. Mm -hmm. So once we've got these um, formulations characterized, we can see what they look like, what um, how they behave. And if we need to make them, you know, if we want to increase the likelihood of them succeeding, we can change little components here and there and then compare that against the original. And then we can see if that improves it or not. Okay. So, so in your lab, are the most, like, are you using animal models? Like, what are you most commonly testing? On? So initially, these formulations are tested outside of the animal. Um, so animals, we only really test once we have the formulation ready. Okay. So in order to, in order to get these formulations ready, um, we test them basically on the bench side. Okay. So we can test so many different formulations in so many different ways. And then after all the testing, we come up with, you know, just a few that we want to go, go on to testing in animals. Yeah. Um, and, and what are those characteristics that you're measuring? Like what, sure. What's a, what's a characteristic of a formulation? So in our lab, we're mainly working with um, particulate formulations and, and specifically uh, nanoparticles. Mm -hmm. And with particles, we are always wanting to know, you know, how big they are, how homogenous the size distribution is. Um, I guess the release of the encapsulated drug from these particles Um they're the most important aspects when we characterize the formulations. So listening to you speak and you talk about formulations and for those who can't see, he's moving his hands around to, to describe it. Do you think that creation of formula, this is going to sound like a really silly question, but is developing a formulation more baking or more cooking? And here's what I mean by that. Baking has this, I, I hate baking. You kind of throw everything in, you measure everything out and then you just throw it in and you hope it works out. And sometimes experiments feel like that. You just have to like ride them out. And then cooking is like on the fly, you could kind of like, as you don't get the results, you're adding a little bit here, a little bit there. So hearing you describe it, it sounded like a little bit of both, but in your own words, like what, what is that process when you're fine tuning and optimizing a formulation? Is it, is it baking or is it cooking? No, you're right. It definitely is a combination of both. So when we're optimizing formulations, um, there's always going to be systematic approaches to optimizing. You can always plan out ahead, um, change components here and there specifically, and then go along with the whole protocol that you've made as if you were cooking a, like multiple, um, you know, baking goods. Yeah. Um, and I guess like, you know, being a scientist, you, you always want to kind of have these uh, thoughts in your head about what you can improve on. And, you know, sometimes they, they come on the fly and right. you want to just do it on the spot. So of course we're gonna um, get some cheeky sort of cooking here and there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also um, more, I guess, the baking um, process going on as well. Absolutely. So definitely a, a combination of both. Oh, awesome, I love it. Thanks for walking me through that. <laughs> Sounds like you have some collaborations with private entities, so so non-academic entities. What's that like, and how do those come 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 about? Yeah, it's. A, a really interesting environment to be in, actually. Um, you know, you have academia, which generally tends to focus on research that is, you know, not necessarily going to go into any use later on. I mean, you'd hope so, but it's mainly to do with 
um, the research interests of mm-hmm. the researchers. Whereas you have this other party in the private enterprise, um, they're looking to somehow get something onto the market where they can profit from. And these two agendas can sometimes clash. Um, in terms of the collaborative environment, um, you know, the company's always going to have some agenda and they're looking to expand into, I guess, the skill set of academic institutions and um, trying to, I guess, utilize the expertise of, you know, people that read the literature more, more often, look, are looking more towards the experimental side of things to come up with new solutions to problems. And yeah, it's a really exciting place to be. How do you, how do you balance those uh, opposing kind of headwinds of what people want? At the same time, I'm sure that everyone wants a successful new drug and new therapy, but it sounds like how to get there might be a little bit different or, or you know, any, any insights that you've learned as you've. Yeah, no, definitely for sure. So yeah, going back to the whole different agendas, um, as an example, um, you know, within academic institutions, uh, the timelines can sometimes be a bit more, you know, lax depending on, um, you know, it, it takes more into account the failures of experiments that you're inevitably going to have. Whereas um, industry, they're more keen on the results and then progressing from the results, um, thinking about risk risk management. Yeah, um, It's always more systematic in terms of the reporting period as well. So they always want to have um, progress updates at specific times. And that can be, you know, a bit more stressful compared to academia. Mm-hmm. And it's, I guess, more of a learn on the fly approach. I guess you generally have to adapt to these things. Yeah. So, so one of the, you know, hearing you talk about working with these private entities and then previously in one of your answers, you mentioned patents. Um, how was, as a, as a researcher, have you trained up in that space? Like, this sounds like something like I'm like, I'm sure this was new to you at some point, right? Uh, has it been intimidating? Have you felt supported as you navigate that? So I initially came across the idea of patents and, you know, I, I never really realized that uh, my re- research could be something that could go along that road. And um, yeah, when I first heard about it, I was quite intimidated, but then I realized a lot of patents start out this way mm-hmm. and they generally have... Um, personnel that are dedicated to helping these patents go down the road, you know, the processes of getting a patent approved. Um, so there's a lot of help within institution, institutions in that way. But ultimately, um, you generally want to have your idea backed up with evidence, making sure that all, all the holes are, you know, nice and plugged up. Um, and yeah, it's just a matter of, I guess, Learning on the fly, like I and said. And dealing with lawyers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so in your space, what are what are people most excited about now? Like what are the what are the hot topics that people are, are very excited about? So obviously, um, you know, with the whole uh vaccine world being, I guess, more and more promoted um through the situation. That's yeah, a big deal right now. It is yeah. a big deal. Um and with the success of the mRNA um based vaccines, you know, mRNA itself it's had huge hurdles in the past but because of this huge push um, into research and funding um, it's really allowed this field to progress and i see um, this mrna based formulation going on to more therapeutic roles Mm -hmm. instead of just preventative so definitely other disease um, pathologies they can really benefit from this technology amazing so 
crystal ball, 30 years from now, where do you see the area of formulations going or, or you hope that it, that it goes? I guess relating back to what we do in our lab now at the moment, um, some people within our group have started on AI and machine learning. And okay. this in terms of um, formulation, I guess, development, it really helps just cut down the amount of effort, amount of time, amount of money required to come up with new formulations. And this doesn't just apply to formulations. It can apply to drug discovery, um, other fields as well. So I see AI and machine learning as a big thing. The so cutting the time and development of new formulations? For sure. Yeah. Wow. So are they basically, is there is there a phase where you're kind of working through simulations and permutations of what would happen? Is that what you're hoping that would be cut down? Sure. So um, some people within our lab are looking specifically at trying to correlate the data out there in terms of, you know, going back to the characterization of these formulations, these different outputs, how we can correlate these outputs to the properties that they originally have. And by using this AI, we can kind of connect these two variables together and come up with uh, different models to predict what the outcome might be. That sounds incredible. The future of formulations obviously sounds very exciting. But I wanted to better understand how does this translate to the power of formulations now? What does it take to develop a new formulation? To explore this, I spoke with Professor Ping Lee, who has decades of experience in this space. He's both worked in the private sector and the public space. Currently, he's working on better understanding the mechanisms that drive future formulations. To illustrate what it takes for a new formulation to be developed, Dr. Lee told us a story of a real drug he worked on with a really neat conclusion. So I worked in pharmaceutical companies for, uh, I guess, uh, about 15 years or so. Sharing plow, I was into the conventional uh, pharmaceuticals. Basically, I was in charge of the formulation group. And, and the, the thing was... So yeah. by conventional, you mean like orals? Or like, what oral. do you mean conventional? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was in charge of the oral formulation development. Uh, uh, you know, and eventually I was the senior director, you know, in charge of that. And, and, the, uh, and, and also the so-called um, discovery support. So there's a group before the uh, drug development or, or formulation. So that gave me another perspective because that is how we actually apply all these things to conventional uh, drug, oral drugs. Yeah. Because every, every compound that the company developed or synthesized uh, would have to go through the oral delivery round. Yeah. Uh, so basically every compound went through my group at the time. Is that the gold, like is everyone trying to get from a pharmaceutical perspective? I can imagine from a clinical perspective, the oral is the easiest. That's how people think about taking medications. Yeah. Is that sort of when, when they have a new product, their dream is to always make everything yeah, that, oral? Is that, that sort of that? That's the a standard. Uh, yeah. well, I mean, unless it's a biopharmaceutical, uh, then, then it's injectable. Right. Then, yeah. But, but, but any other compounds, the first one they wanted is the oral dosage form. From right. a marketing perspective, that's really what they wanted. At, so at do you time. have to break their heart sometimes and tell them this well, is not going to be possible? So there was this example, a, a very poorly soluble drug. Um, it's for oncology. And, uh, you know, at the time when I joined the company, company they already had that drug uh, in the discovery group. So they yeah. did all the initial target selection uh, animal work. Uh, they, they got nice results. So, you know, nice blood level and everything. So they uh, pushed that drug into the development pipeline. Right? Right. So, so once you push that into the development pipeline, then all the resources will be concentrated on that. 
So unfortunately, you know, because when it gets to formulation, they already decided on that drug, right? So when we got a, a compound, um, then we started uh, to look at the formulation, how it's uh, dissolving. And at the same time, because they were pushed into the development pipeline, the, uh, it, it got scaled up, you know, another group to right. scale up the synthesis, for example. So after they produced a new synthetic compound, we were trying to test it again. And we found, uh, no, the dissolution dropped almost 100%. Mm. Okay, so the availability dropped tremendously. So what do you do? So, you know, I was called into <laughs> this meeting and the senior VP looking at me, uh, can, can formulation do anything? Well, you know, of course, there are different ways to improve dissolution. But, you know, we, we actually tried uh, different ways, the conventional ways of grinding up the compound into very small particle size or using surfactants and all kinds of uh, techniques we yeah. know in the books. But it never, and it didn't work. So the only last resort uh, was, you know, at the time I, I just, because the, the reason, you know, the reason we, we ended up using the amorphous solid dispersion was the reason they got this big drop in, uh, in bioavailability, like 80% drop, was because in the discovery phase, the chemists just got some white powder, so they tested it in the animals. It was nice, but they didn't realize that white powder was in the amorphous form of the drug. Mm. So they just, you know, the, the condition they tried to precipitate, it created amorphous form. So when it scaled up, it becomes, it became crystalline. Crystalline, the solubility dropped tremendously and therefore the bioavailability dropped about 100%. So, so that was the reason, um, but that gave, me, uh, gave us some idea because if we can keep the drug in amorphous form, we may be able to get it uh, into the system. Right. So then, then we came up with the idea of using the solid dispersion, although, you know, the, the technology really was at its infancy at the time. So we just applied it to, to the system and uh, yeah, and drug polymer spray drying and they, we created the dosage form Then they tested and uh, yeah, the results were great. So you say you save the day. So if we save can save day. formulation, yeah. save the day because uh, they could have developed this drug, invested all this money, and if they couldn't get someone to absorb no, it, it's no. pretty much useless. It's coming out exactly where so, it so, went in. So that drug formulation was developed and and uh, in the capsule capsule form, and then it actually went on, you know, scaled up and supported the clinical study all the way to phase three for oncology for different cancers. Uh, unfortunately, it, the efficacy wasn't as good, you know. So they basically stopped after several years. Yeah. After several years. But um, but it got to humans. Like, it, I think oh, that's yeah, the point. Yeah. Like, a yeah. lot of humans have published, published the results in, in uh, yeah. different art journals. That's incredible. But, 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 it, <laughs> but that's not the end of the story. That's what I want to mention is, interestingly, starting in like mid-2000s, this uh, new application came up. You know, they actually, the, uh, this uh, foundation, Progeric uh, Research Foundation, picked it up because... It turned out this this drug I was talking about it was a, a, a foreign cell transferase inhibitor, and it didn't work in the in the uh, oncology, but it, it actually should work, you know, for for the uh, progeria. They had that idea, so they somehow got this compound or the actually formulation from Merck to run all the clinical studies, and the results seemed to be 
phenomenon. I mean, they they they, they improve the, uh, the 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 lives of the uh, the, the premature aging uh, uh, children. So wow. So I followed the pro- progress of that, and uh, you know, so for from the mid two uh, thousands until uh, re- recently, I just noticed the the drug was approved for this for treating this Hutchins, uh, Hutchinson Guilford. Uh, Progeria syndrome by the FDA just last November. Oh wow! So so all of a sudden you know so I went back to the the package insert. I just wanted to see what what's in their formulation. I mean exactly the ingredient I had in my patent. So so I, I'm very satisfied. You know, so <laughs> very rewarding experience. Yeah, that's incredible. But, but it does show that you know the drug can 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 fail due to the uh, poor solubility or poor dissolution. But but this seems to be something that is sort of magic. You know I, I guess. We sometimes refer to that as almost like the last resort, like mm-hmm. uh, vancomycin. So everything, when everything failed, you know, this might work. Right. Uh, so that that turned out to be a very nice experience. Ah, gotta love a story with a happy ending. I had too much fun with this episode. As you can tell, I find the idea of the same drug being used in different ways riveting. I learned that formulation development is not like cooking. But it's also like cooking. The stepwise process of developing different formulations really felt like the key way to unlock the power of drugs. A way to use the same drug in multiple different ways. This felt like a key step in the life of a drug. Okay, but I'm not done. To end, I asked them a selfish question. So what is your favorite formulation? I feel like because I, um, I thought about that before this interview, so I have an answer. Okay, for you? Yeah, my uh, favorite form. I'm a pharmacist. I need to have a favorite formulation. Um, I, uh, this is difficult. Um, I think my favorite formulation would have to be. Uh, let's just go with uh, lipid nanoparticles, just because that's the one that's quite popular at the moment. <laughs> and so why do you like them? Um, they are simple, yet they are effective. I guess that's what you want in a formulation in the end. Yeah. So I, I find the most intriguing, this is going to be really, is is matrix-based transdermal patches. Oh. I just think it's in like there's a for me I think I was intimidated by the like the ingenuity of being able to understand the fluids, understand the the, the how to cross the skin but still deliver a drug in a sustained amount, and the fact that you can use a patch for like multiple days and not remove it is incredible. But at the same time, it also grounds you in reality that you can do all this science, and then the most important thing is how you're going to make it stick on. And like in the pharmacy, where people come in all the time, but I just always thought it was so neat that you can just put this patch on. And there's so many of them, right? There's the scopolamine ones, like so many neat ones that happen. And I just always thought they were kind of neat. That was kind of my favorite one. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Here's Professor Lee again. Um, I, well, I guess since I was talking about this uh, <laughs> Elona Farnip, uh, this eventually became this uh, a drug to, for this neglected disease, you know, yeah. for the Hutchinson uh, Guilford. Uh, progeria syndrome. So, I, I, I still would say the, that's still my favorite. You know, because you know, if the, my name was on a patent for something, it would be my favorite too. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, but but just because there, it presents so many challenges. Because yeah. you know, that's how we, we can keep on 
publishing papers, looking at different mechanisms. Yeah. But if a, if a, if a system that's really known, you know, just like a regular tableting, I mean, I, I don't think I would pay much attention to, to, yeah, because if there are no challenges, no problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or no, it's established technique uh, and so forth. Then, then it's there. There's you know, so the research value would then drop tremendously. So, so it's the challenge that keeps us interested in in these. You know, we're yeah. trying to solve the a real problem that could, could beneficial to, uh, could be beneficial to patients, for example. This episode of the I'm Pharmacy podcast was produced by Steve Southon, Kate Richards, and me, Mina Tadros. It was edited by Steve Southon with musical support from Steve Southon and Diego Martinez. Special thanks to Dr. Cam Kineko and Professor Ping Lee. We'll be dropping new episodes every month, so be sure to subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep asking questions, stay safe, and catch your next episode.